You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we continue to revisit some of my favorite podcasts from the past in this Millennial Investing Rewind. If you've missed our previous Rewind episodes, we've started to reshare some older episodes that are my favorites for a few reasons. One, we get a bunch of new listeners each week, so the new listeners may not have heard this episode before. Two, even if you've been listening for a while, you may have missed this episode when it originally came out. Or three, even if you've heard it before, it can be a great episode to learn from again. If you've already heard this episode or you're not interested in hearing it, feel free to just skip it. There's no harm in that, and you could pick up with our new episodes next week. Also, if you've been listening for a while, you know about the fee for this show. And if you're new, I want to let you know that we do have a fee for listening to the Millennial Investing and Real Estate 101 podcasts. It's not a monetary fee. I don't want you guys to have to pay me anything to listen to the show. I'm actually happy and proud to be able to bring this to you guys for free and provide all of this content for free. But what we ask for the fee is for you to share this show with one friend. For every episode that you like the show, just share it with one friend. I'd love it if you shared this across social media and told hundreds of people, but you don't have to do that. You can satisfy the fee by just sharing every episode that you like with one person. If an episode makes you think of something in a different way or teaches you something new, just share that episode with a friend. And we've made it easy for you to do that by creating what is called starter packs. So what we've done to make it easy for you guys to pay the fee is created these things called starter packs. We've basically created five or six categories that all of these different episodes could fit into from beginner stock market investing to personal finance and a bunch of other different categories. And I've listed out my four to six favorite episodes for that category. So if you want to share the show with somebody, you can tell them to check out the starter packs and they can pick which category and which episodes they want to check out. Or even if you're just looking to find some episodes in a certain category, you could check out those starter packs as well. You can find those by going to theinvestorspodcast.com slash M-I starter packs. That's theinvestorspodcast.com slash MI starter packs. And if you want to connect with me directly, the best place to find me is on Twitter. You can also find me on Instagram. My username on both is the Robert Leonard. That's the Robert Leonard. T-H-E-R-O-B-E-R-T-L-E-O-N-A-R-D. All right, guys, that's all I had for you for this new intro. Everything going forward is going to be from the original show. Hope you guys enjoy it. On today's show, I sit down with Ryan Reeves to talk about various stock picking strategies and some of the best ways to grow your investor education. Ryan has been investing since the age of 12 and is now founder and CEO of Investing City, an independent equity research platform. Ryan and I actually have a very similar background. We both got interested in investing at a very young age and have been passionate about it ever since. I always enjoy connecting with others in the millennial generation that are as passionate about investing as I am. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Ryan Reeves. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's show. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Ryan Reeves, 
Welcome to the show, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me. For those listening that don't know you or your background, walk us through your story and how you got to where you are today. Thanks for asking. It actually started when I was fairly young. I was 12 years old and in the fifth grade, and I had a teacher who brought in her husband to talk to the class about the stock market. And for some reason, I found it really interesting and might have been a nerdy kid or something, but I really just fell in love with analyzing businesses and just continuously learning. And so that's really where it started, started investing when I was 12. And then in college, I had an internship at The Motley Fool, which was a great experience. And then actually the last year of college, I did school and also worked at a hedge fund kind of part-time. And so really the background is a lot of investing in just business analysis. And when I graduated, I wanted to kind of do something a little bit different. So I had those two experiences at The Motley Fool. I mean, it's a great business, but it's really a publishing business. They have to get out a certain number of materials every month because that's what they promise. And it's pretty hard for members to kind of create optimal portfolios just because there's so much volume of recommendations. And then the hedge fund, they did a great job of portfolio management and allocations, but I thought the fees were a little bit high. And so after college, set out to kind of create this research service that could kind of combine the best of both worlds. And so been doing that the past two years and really just love investing. We'll get into your strategy a little bit more later in the episode, but did you think the fees were high at the hedge fund because you might follow a similar model to what Warren Buffett had at his original partnerships or hedge fund? I think that's a really interesting model. So I believe it was like a 5 or 6% hurdle rate for Warren Buffett's first partnership. And then he would take like 25% of the profits after that hurdle rate, which really just aligns the incentives versus you're charging a 2 and 20 and you out, you underperform for years and years and you're still just charging that 2% management fee. And then you're getting 20% of anything if you actually do, do have positive returns. And so I think it's just really aligns incentives with um, Warren Buffett's model. But yeah, that was that was kind of the thing, just talking about you should actually get paid based on performance, not just the fact that, okay, this is kind of the conventional sort of thing that we've always done. When your teacher's husband came into your class to speak to you, was he pitching stock investing in general or was he pitching a, a specific type of strategy? Was he a day trader, a technical analysis? Was he a value guy? What did that dynamic look like? That's actually a good question. He might have been pitching something, but I knew so little that I might not even have caught on. But basically, he came in and was just talking about different businesses. And then throughout the rest of the year, we had this little stock game where you'd pick a business and try to see who outperformed the most. And I think I picked McDonald's or something and really didn't do that well versus some other person in the class picked Apple and just absolutely crushed me. And so maybe it's the competitive nature of, wow, I, I want to figure this out since I didn't do that well at the beginning or something. But yeah, I don't think he had a, a specific tilt or anything. And the reason I asked that, because I was curious if it led to the current strategy that you're using now. And if it didn't, how did you pivot from what he taught you to you know what you're doing today? So what does your strategy look like today? So I've had an evolution as an investor. We, after, shortly after learning about what the stock market was, I kind of stumbled across Warren Buffett and started reading his investment letters and 
figuring out just what valuation was, all of these sorts of investment concepts. And then over time, I eventually saw that these companies that I was familiar with, kind of these consumer companies like Netflix and Amazon, I started seeing them do incredibly well. And here I was trying to figure out, like typing into Google, low PE ratio stocks, because I thought that was a good thing to do. And I kind of had these two ideas in my mind. Okay, on one hand, I see these stocks going up and up that are kind of very overvalued. And then my stocks really aren't doing that well. And but I'm like playing by the quote unquote rules. And so just after wrestling with that for a long time, I eventually started slowly being interested in more growth companies. And so that's a lot of what my strategy kind of represents nowadays. And the thing is, all investing is really value investing. Even if you're investing in companies that are growing, that doesn't necessarily mean that you should willingly pay for a company that there's no way it can grow into its valuation. And so even though I invest in companies that really have high growth, I don't just put valuation to the wind. I think about what, can the, what are the assumptions that are priced into this company. And so I think that's, that's a common thing that a lot of value investors, they'll never pay up for something. But you know, there's also a limit to that. So there's not black and white. There's definitely, there's definitely a lot of nuance involved. It's kind of funny that you said that at the beginning about how you're just buying low PE stocks because I did almost the exact same thing. When I first got into investing, I was learning about Warren Buffett. I thought that you know I had already read everything about him, but I still, for some reason, thought that an undervalued stock just meant that it was trading at a low multiple. And if my discounted cash flow analysis showed that it was undervalued, then I should buy it. And it was strictly on fundamentals. I didn't look at the qualitative business. I didn't look at the business model, any future prospects or anything like that. And I had the same results that you did. It was There was no reason for the stock to go up. There was no catalyst for the stock to go up or for the market to realize the value of the, the stock that I saw. And so I continued to underperform and it got super frustrating. And then as I continued to learn, just like you did, I started to pivot a little bit more to more growth where I realized that growth doesn't necessarily mean a low multiple. It means that even sometimes it's qualitative factors of the business that are undervalued. And that's completely changed my investing strategy today. And I know myself, I love analyzing stocks. I love in reading annual reports. But at the same time, I know that it's a tough road. And academics and finance tend to look down on stock pickers a lot and shows us that research concluding we're as good as monkeys throwing darts at the Wall Street Journal stock section, right? So do you think you can analyze stocks and invest and beat the market? I love this question because if I didn't believe that, then there's no way I would be in the business. The thing is, like at the end of the day, the numbers don't really lie. I mean, if I, so I've been keeping track of my returns for, I guess, over a decade now. And if my returns were well below the market, I should probably sit there and think, well, maybe I should stop this and invest my time into something that would be more productive. But at the end of the day, like there's a certain, and that's a tricky thing because, okay, if you outperform for one year, is that luck or is that skill? Or three years, five years, 10 years, like at what point is there really kind of a clear cut skill? And a lot of people will study this and come up with okay, only if you outperform by a meaningful amount after 20 years or something, then you can chalk it up to skill. And it's like, okay, that, that might be true, but um, yeah, I'm just, my point is at the end of the day, the numbers don't lie. If you actually outperform, then like, okay, there might be some sort of merit to my process. And then the other thing I'd say is there's a difference between the probability of something 
and then also the magnitude of the outcome if it actually does become true. And so actually, I was looking at this the other day. I think these are the correct numbers. So if you put $10,000 into the market for 40 years, uh, the difference between 6 and 8% return eventually is $1.2 million. And so I mean, $10,000 is a decent amount of money, but pretty doable. And then the difference between 6 and 10% is like 3.3 million. And so it seems like a measly 4%, but it really compounding really affects the, the actual amount of money that you have. And so my whole thing is, okay, maybe the probabilities of you outperforming by uh, a decent amount aren't very high, but I think the magnitude of that if you actually can do it, it's probably worth it. And so I think the expected value is probably positive. And so that's kind of just another thought on that. Yeah. And the percentages also takes into consideration. It's the same thing for expenses, right? If you, you might have a great return, but if you net of expenses, that's where that discrepancy can be really big on the other side. And to your point, it's hard to know, like you said, about when when is there conclusive evidence that I can successfully pick stocks and at least keep up with the market, if not beat it? And you could argue that forever. Is it one year, three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years? And some people will still say that you know Warren Buffett's lucky. So you know who knows? And I, I don't think there's ever going to be a specific time period in which you have to have certain results to classify it as successful. So, But that said, do you think Picking individual stocks is a good strategy for a new investor, or should they possibly just stick to diversifying through low-cost ETFs? It's a great question. And I think there's two things that we should think about or any new investor should think about if they're actually interested in picking stocks. And so that's the first thing, interest level. If you have no interest in business or the stock market, but you like this idea of making money maybe like this get rich quick sort of thing about the stock market, that's probably not a good sign. So you have to be interested in it because it's pretty competitive. And if you don't actually enjoy it, and if, you don't, if you're not continuously learning, then that really puts you at a disadvantage. Then the other thing is risk tolerance. So if you cannot withstand... I mean, Warren Buffett says it. If you at any point cannot withstand like a 50% drawdown, then you probably shouldn't invest in individual stocks. Just because there is a lot of volatility, and if you don't know why you're holding the stocks that you hold, you can easily get shaken out of them. So I think those are really two things that people should ask themselves if they are interested in picking stocks. Like, do I really even care about this and care about learning about this? And then what is my risk tolerance? Because those two things, if you can get them right, will really set you up on a clear path, even if you're not necessarily good at it at the start. Let's assume that someone has an interest in stocks. They know they're interested in it. They know they're ready to put the time in. They're not an expert by any means, but they know they want to try picking individual companies. How do they know when they're ready to actually start doing that and get away from ETFs? I think that's a really good question. And yeah, that's the thing. You won't be ready. But that's also kind of the point. It's a little bit like anything that you're learning that's new, a good idea is just to get involved. I mean, if you are always reading about investing, but you never actually do it, you kind of miss a lot of the context. It's kind of like writing, wanting to learn how to ride a bike, then all you're doing is just reading about riding a bike. At some point, you actually have to do it and understand even the emotions that are involved with it. And you see that your stock has uh, something called the enterprise value. And you look up, what does that mean? And then you start learning piece by piece just as you do it. And so I think just jumping in 
and just starting with a small amount of money will really prime you and really give you a context for the beginning of the investing journey. So if you're like me, you have friends and family members that tell you investing in the stock market is gambling and that they don't want to gamble with their money like that. How do you handle these types of conversations? How do you explain to someone that might not be in the investing world that investing in the stock market isn't actually gambling? I've gotten those conversations. I think... So first of all, if somebody asks me a question, but it's not really a question, it's more of a statement and they're trying to get me to agree with them, like, you know, you can't really beat the market, right? Then I'll just kind of laugh and not really take it seriously because it's really hard for somebody that is not open-minded. It's really hard for you to completely change their mind about something. And so I won't go to bat and absolutely try to convince them of every little point. I'll just kind of try to be unemotional with those people and just let them kind of have their own viewpoint because it's probably not worth my time to try to convince them because they're not in a state of even wanting to be convinced. But for somebody who's actually open-minded and asks a genuine question about, what do you think about investing? I've read this study where people can't actually beat the market, but I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Then I'll just go into kind of the reasoning that I had earlier. And I think it really comes down to what's the difference between gambling and... I mean, it really comes down to risk. Because gambling, the idea of risk is kind of thrown to the wind. You're not really thinking about what are the probabilities and the bets. I mean, somebody can actually gamble in a smart manner. I mean, if people do poker and they're actually really good poker players, statistically, they can do better than average. And okay, sure, that's gambling, but kind of, as I said before, the numbers speak for themselves. And so I think it's really being able to take the emotion out of it and just like poker would be considered gambling, but people can actually make a lot of money from that if they make the right decisions and act unemotionally. And so that's kind of what I would go through, but it's really hard to convince people if they're not even looking to be convinced. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with, and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? a tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. 
That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. And I know you're pretty concerned with investor education. You've thoughtfully pointed out on your website that people deserve financial education that's simple, interesting, and not in a slimy manner. And I totally agree with you. That's exactly what we're trying to do here on the podcast. So how can listeners become better educated in this industry? I'm a big fan of investor letters. So there's actually this great website called Mind Safety Disclosures. If you just typed in hedge fund letters on Google, you could find it. But this guy has kind of compiled all of these investor letters, like hundreds and hundreds of them. And I think it's a great way because these are professional investors who've been doing it for a long time. They have people that trust them with their money and they do this for a living. So they're constantly thinking about this stuff. And so if you just read through some of these, and if you come to a concept that you don't understand at all, you just Google it. So I mean, there's Investopedia is a great resource where you can just find a ton of different concepts and just start to piece together things, concepts, and ideas. So I think that would be a great place to start. Just start reading investor letters. And then anytime you come to something that you don't understand, just start Googling it and digging in and try to figure out the context. So I think investor letters are a great place to start. Is there anything in particular that a new investor should focus on when they're first starting to learn about this topic? So if you could go back and maybe think about when you were just starting, did you waste your time studying certain things that didn't really matter? And now if you could go back and do it again, you'd focus on specific things and learn those first? It's actually a really good question. It's tricky because as an investor, there are certain investor things, like a certain foundation that you need to have, like a little bit of accounting, just knowing what cost of goods sold are and just like being able to kind of speak the language of business. So I think accounting is actually a really helpful tool just to have a solid foundation. And then a lot of it is just business fluency. I think in investing, there's a huge focus on financial fluency, but a little bit less focus on business fluency and looking at what's the marketing of this company? How is it stronger than this other company? What's the company culture? Like a little bit more of the qualitative aspects, because I think those have longer life spans. So if you understand kind of at the core, what makes a good business, I'd say that those concepts have a longer shelf life than figuring out what is be the like earnings per share of this particular company next quarter. So I think like with that said, there is a certain like accounting fluency that you that you should need, but it's a really good question. I would say that one thing that is maybe not particularly helpful is like the minutia at the beginning. Like if you come across something that you really just can't understand, and like for instance, goodwill and amortization write-offs, like you probably don't need to understand the minutia at the beginning. 
if you get really the big concepts and understand like the main value drivers of a business, I'd say you'd be pretty well served understanding those first. Yeah, I think understanding the qualitative side of things is so important. We talked about this a few minutes ago, but that was a piece of my investing that I missed early on. And I think in today's world, it's probably one of the most important pieces. And you know, understanding the fundamentals and the financials and things of that nature are important as well. But in reality, there's technology today that hedge funds have and you know, other wealthier investors have that they can deploy. And if there's any discrepancy in value based on just strictly fundamentals, that's going to be taken away almost instantaneously by these high frequency trading, these super fast computer models that these people have built. So it comes down to finding value in the qualitative features that a lot of people are missing because they're not seeing the business or understanding the business in the right way. And I think that's where a lot of undervalued picks can come in. And so I think that's great advice. Like I said, that's something that I missed when I first got started. I have one thing to kind of touch on off of that point. So it's really interesting as an investor, if you think about trying to figure out the value of a company, so right, value of any asset is the present value of future cash flows. And if you think about a DCF model, the input of the DCF is the financial metrics of the company. How much is the top line going to grow? What are margins going to be? All of these things. So that's the input, right? And then the output is the value of the company. You run it through the present value calculations, all that. So input financials, output is the value of the company. But if you think of it from the entrepreneur's point of view, the output is the financials. And the input is all the hard work they do, thinking about the strategy, thinking about company culture. All these small decisions that they make every day are the inputs of the eventual outputs, which are the financials. So it kind of creates a tension, right? As an investor, your input is actually an entrepreneur's output. And so I think it's an interesting way as an investor to kind of focus on the inputs. And so I think that's a little bit of the difference between quantitative and qualitative. Like a quantitative investor is focusing only on the outputs of a business, aka the financials, versus a qualitative investor might focus on the inputs of the business and all like what's the customer value proposition, how is pricing affecting demand, like all of these sort of soft factors that eventually create the outputs. But I think you can kind of get a layer deeper that as you're talking about, especially with computers and just like machine learning and all these things that kind of are arbitraging away the actual financial differences and inefficiencies. I think you can kind of get a layer deeper if you start looking at the inputs from an entrepreneur's point of view. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Let's dive into a few specific stock picks and how you're analyzing those companies. Let's start with a company that you already own and that you still like to this day. What is that company and how did you find it? There's this company that I've owned for a while called Roku. And Roku is a company that I first found in college, actually. In my dorm, there was a Roku TV set up, this tiny little Roku remote. And so it kind of primed me. And then it IPO'd not that much after I started familiarizing myself with like what the Roku operating system was and all this. So then I IPO'd and I started looking into it more. And there was some pretty interesting growth. And then it was a little bit of a broken IPO, actually. It kind of ramped up and then had a bad quarter and stock kind of fell off a bit. So then I started really looking into it. And the interesting thing about Roku is compared to Amazon and Google and Apple, who have pretty much the same sort of product, Roku has really thrived. And 
I think the value is that Roku is a neutral platform. And so let me just kind of back up. So Roku's main value add is for the smart TV manufacturers. So a lot of these companies that make smart TVs, they could have a whole team of in-house software developers that make the operating system for their TV. So you can try out different subscriptions and just kind of navigate your TV. So what Roku does is allows these smart TV manufacturers to license their operating system. And so just like Windows and PC manufacturers, Roku really does that for smart TVs. And now it's sold in like every one out of three newly sold smart TVs. And so it's really created massive scale. Last quarter, I think they reported like 38 million active accounts for Roku. And so what this does is it begins to allow Roku to have leverage over different players in the ecosystem. So for instance, Disney Plus did a ton of advertising on Roku system as they launched Apple TV, the same thing. So Roku is kind of this aggregator of demand and eyeballs. And then they can kind of leverage that to sell advertising to content creators and actually brands. And so the fastest growing part of Roku's business is their advertising on demand. And so brands will come to Roku and say, okay, you have 38 million eyeballs of highly targeted traffic. So the difference between Roku, since it's connected TV, they have really high granularity into different people's backgrounds of watching TV and the habits versus linear TV, where they really don't have as much granular data. So the ROI for Roku's platform is much higher for advertisers as well. And so I think the value of the neutrality is also important because if you think about Amazon's Fire TV stick, if you're a brand like Walmart that's wanting to advertise with not on linear TV, but instead Roku, one of these other players, you're probably not going to use Amazon because there's obviously big conflicts of interest with their main core business. And so things like that, Roku is removed from all of that. And there's just this neutral player that's kind of a platform that really enables advertisers to get higher ROI spend on a lot of eyeballs. Admittedly, I don't know a ton about Roku. I have looked into the company a little bit. It IPO'd not too long ago. And so I was, I was digging into it uh, when it did. And there's actually, as we record this, is a Roku TV sitting above my head on the wall here. But so I'm familiar with the product and the service. And I think what a lot of people missed on the IPO, at least, was that they thought they were a hardware company and they didn't understand how the company was fetching the valuations that it was being a hardware company. Whereas it's really more of that SaaS model or the more of that subscription software model where they're licensing it out, like you said, and then using advertising as well. Which you know, of course, fetches different valuations for the company and different multiples. So that's definitely an interesting dynamic to the company. Do you see the space that it's playing in as a zero sum game? And the reason I ask that is because you mentioned some pretty heavy hitters that that company is going up against. Right? It's going up against Amazon, Apple. You know, companies that have a lot of money, a lot of weight behind them. If it's a zero sum game, they might get squished by those two companies. And Roku, that is, might get squished by those two companies. So is it a zero-sum game or is there room in this market for everybody? And Roku could be successful even with Amazon and Apple playing in the same field. A big piece of the thesis is just a general tailwind from linear TV to streaming. And so for watch times, I can't remember the exact statistics off the top of my head, but for all of TV consumption, it's something like 25 to 30% is moved from linear to streaming. 
But in terms of ad dollars, it's only 3% of total ad dollars are on streaming. And so I think there's this natural tailwind of kind of just the continual degradation of the cable bundle. So yeah, I think there's a lot of excess room for um, different players, but I think Roku has the scale right now and is kind of capitalizing on this tailwind. And so I think that it will probably be a winner take most market, but I think there's also room for players just because this, this streaming market is gigantic and it'll continue to have growth just because of these dollars that are going to be flowing from linear to streaming. So how did you find this company? How did it get on your radar? I mean, there's thousands of different companies to analyze or look at or invest in. How did Roku show up on your screener or how did it get on your radar? Honestly, I remember just seeing the Roku TV and wondering, what's Roku? I've never heard of this. And then sort of primed me. And I think I stumbled across an article about Roku IPOing. And that put another kind of signpost in my way. And then I can't remember exactly why I started looking at it again. But that's the thing. Finding stocks is very random process. Like I I will do pretty much anything. Like some people say they'll never screen. I'll do screen sometimes, but a lot of the ideas I find are from sometimes internet forums or just talking to smart friends in the industry or new IPOs. Like it's there's so many different ways to find a name that it's kind of like a treasure hunt. Yeah, that goes back to a book that Peter Lynch wrote called One Up on Wall Street, where he talks about how you are able to find investment ideas just from the different products you use every day. And Roku here is a perfect example of that for you. Now, once it showed up on your radar, you decided you were interested in it and you wanted to start analyzing it. What specific things were you looking for? And how did you know that those were the right things to look for? It's a really good question. To start analyzing, I have something that I've kind of created. It's not really anything special, but I call it the three drivers. And so the three drivers are kind of what would be the main inputs for an eventual company's value. And I really think it comes down to the... Especially when you're looking at these companies that are growing fast, the top line, the bottom line, and then competition. So if a company can grow its sales and then grow its margins, will have more profit and therefore the company will be valued at a higher rate and therefore you'll make money on your investment as long as you don't pay too crazy of a multiple for it. And so those are the first two drivers, just simple top line, bottom line, kind of figuring out what are the trends? Is revenue growth just falling off a cliff? Are margins really eroding? Is there a potential path to profitability because Roku is not fully profitable yet on a gap basis? And then the other thing is competition. So spend a ton of time analyzing competitors and understanding kind of the value chain of the industry. And so looked a lot into all the metrics of Fire Stick and is Roku growing faster? Why is that? Talking to people, talking to customers, talking to employees of the company is like really important to kind of understand the competition because if there's a crazy amount of competition and there's no barriers to entry, which a lot of people think that that's the case for Roku, but I think that the real value is kind of the partnerships with these smart TV manufacturers because they're solving a real problem for the TV manufacturers. And a lot of people are viewing it from the consumer lens like, oh, I have so many options to watch TV as a consumer. I think they're really missing 
who Roku is solving the problem for. And so just really understanding deeply the dynamics of the industry, especially the competition, because the competition comes in and starts undercutting you and starts offering advertisers better ROI, then obviously that's really going to kind of limit the profitability of your business. And so I really try to look into those three things and understand those deeply, top line, bottom line, and then competition. So now let's talk about another company. And this time, let's talk about one that's on your watch list that you're interested in and you want to buy it, but you haven't actually pulled the trigger and purchased it yet. What is that company? This is actually a tricky question for me because if I'm really fascinated by a company and think, oh, wow, I think this is an amazing company. But here's where a lot of people probably differ. If they see a company that they really like, but it's a little bit expensive, they'll put it on the watch list and wait for the company to kind of fall to a price where they think it's reasonable for them to buy in. I view it a little bit differently. So if I like a company a lot, I'll put a very small amount in just to start kind of having some skin in the game. And if the company keeps performing well and the stock price goes up, I have no problem just averaging up. And so that's what's kind of happened with a lot of winners in the portfolio, just continually average up as the thesis of the investment plays out. So honestly, there's not a company on my watch list that I think wow, I really wish I owned that company because I'll buy a little bit of it. And it might not be a huge position, but I really just like that methodology because it kind of evolved over time. I used to have this watch list where I would make sort of a... It wasn't arbitrary because this price point would kind of represent a certain forward return that I could expect based on my analysis and based on all the numbers. But what I found was it was a little bit arbitrary because, okay, let's say the price point was $70 and then the stock would get down to 71 and it'd be like, well, it hasn't hit my price yet. It's like, well, that's actually like 1%. Like It's a very small amount that 71 versus 70, what's the difference? And so it's really hard to kind of have a specific price point because the stock itself has no idea what that price point is. It's not like it's going to hit that and say like a blinking light and tell you, okay, you should buy me now. Because another thing is when a stock really falls a lot, it takes a lot of conviction to buy it because most of the time stocks don't just fall randomly. There will be like a coherent narrative of, okay, competitors coming in and all this stuff is happening. So if you don't actually know the company and you just have this price point, it's really hard to even buy it on the way down. And so I really just try to focus on absolute best businesses that I can find. And then if the valuation is not super attractive, I'll buy a little bit and then continue to learn about the company. I guess kind of like a counterpoint to that is where it might get me in trouble is I will dilute quality a little bit. So I stay pretty concentrated. I think in the portfolio right now is like 13 names. But I think that a lot of investors that I really respect who have outperformed, they stay even more concentrated and they'll only put they only buy a company if they're willing to risk like 10% of their portfolio or something. So they really keep the quality of the name super high. But I think that it's just another way to look at it. And right now, the way that I'm doing it is kind of what I've settled on, but always trying to understand how I can improve and what would be a better way of doing things. I actually do something similar ever since the trading commissions went to $0. I've done something similar. I still have a watch list and I don't buy every single stock that I'm interested in or that might go to my watch list. But now I do buy a lot more frequently. I do buy one or two shares of a company that I'm interested in that might have just sat on my watch list just because now that I have skin in the game, I'm a lot more 
bought into it, even if it is just one or two shares. Now I want to actually get in and research that company and decide if I want to allocate more of my portfolio to it. It sounds like you're doing something similar. And I think you raise a really good point about the psychological aspect of a falling share price, right? That's so hard for people who want to buy the stock and see it fall maybe 10, 15, 20% to get to that price that they want to buy at. How do they know that that's going to be the bottom? And that's a really hard thing to do and try and buy just because it hit an arbitrary price target that you set. How do you know that that's going to be the bottom and a good place to buy? And I think that's really hard for a lot of people to do. That's a super good point because, yeah, like I said, the stock has no idea what price you're looking for and it's going to just move how it wants to. You have to make the decisions based on the information that you have. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. So are there any companies that are on your hypothetical watch list, if you will? Maybe you own a couple shares, small, small position, but you think you might want to scale it up bigger. You just haven't done so yet. Actually, a company that recently reported earnings that I have a small position in, but I'm pretty excited about is a company called Lavongo. So Lavongo is a fairly recent IPO. 
But what the company does is really at the core, it's a data company, but it creates and has a bunch of different partners with companies that allow them to cater to people with chronic conditions. So the main offering they have right now is a diabetes offering. So what they do is create relationships with self-insured employers. So for instance, Amazon has 300,000 employees or something, and they strike up a deal with Livongo and Amazon can send out a blast to all their employees saying, anybody that has diabetes or suffers from this can use Livongo's service. So these Amazon employees will enroll in the service. And usually it's about 30% of total employees will enroll like based on who has the chronic condition. They're still trying to increase the enrollment rate, but these employees will enroll and then Livongo will send them a health kit. And so it'll be the instruments where you can see your blood sugar and all this. And so as as you're taking your blood sugar, that data will automatically go to Livongo. And if your blood sugar is too high, it's called like a health nudge. And so actually somebody from Livongo will reach out and say, hey, were you aware that this affected you? And they've moved out the platform to hypertension and weight loss management. And so it's really, how do you create the value out of this data, out of all this healthcare data? And the company is growing over 100%. And they've added a lot of members because they're striking really good deals. And like they just created a partnership with a company called Dexcom, which makes really high-end continuous glucose monitors. And so Livongo can now send these continuous glucose monitors that people don't have to constantly prick themselves. It will just that data will constantly be flowing to Livongo. And so they can create these health nudges and certain strategies so that these people with chronic conditions can sort of not always be going to the doctor and just kind of cut some costs out of the whole healthcare system. As you're explaining that company and what they do and what they're trying to accomplish and how they're trying to cut costs out of the healthcare system, I can understand how that might be an attractive investment. But the other component of it was circle of competency. For me, that's outside of my circle of competency. I don't think I could fully wrap my head around that business or understand it to a point where I'd be comfortable investing in it. So how do you think about that dynamic? Is that a company that you... Or is it in an industry or does it have a business model that is within your circle of competency just straight from the beginning? Or was it something that you kind of had to learn as you started to learn about the company? It's a really good question. So circle of competence is huge. If you don't understand the industry, don't understand the business model, then you have no idea when something changes and then if you should change your mind. So it was actually a pretty long process of just studying healthcare companies. And also because it's really at its core, it is sort of a SaaS model where they have subscriptions. It's kind of like a per month, per participant per month sort of deal for these employers. And so I kind of could understand the business model, okay, for every employee that enrolls in the program, the employer pays this much. But then the big piece was, okay, how do I understand how Livongo actually sells to these employers? And kind of a middleman in the healthcare system is something called a PBM, so Pharmacy Benefit Manager. So I took a long time understanding what those were. Are Can Livongo eventually circumvent them? How much costs do they actually add to the system? So like all of these aspects of the healthcare system that are a little different from just like a normal technology company, yeah, spend a lot of time trying to understand that. What does competition look like? Why is Livongo 
really have an advantage versus some of the other competitors who seem like they're doing really the same thing? What are the partnerships like? So yeah, it took a long time. And I don't, I wouldn't say that I'm fully a healthcare expert or anything. And that's why it's still a smaller position. But yeah, I think that is a super key aspect that you bring up. That was exactly going to be my next question. Why is it still a small position in your portfolio? Is it strictly just because you're still trying to understand the industry and the business more? Or is there other underlying reasons as to why you haven't scaled into that position more? Kind of going back to the three drivers of competition is key aspect. And I don't, I don't feel like I have a full understanding of the competitive dynamics. There's a few other companies like this one called Gluco that seems like it does the same thing. Uh, it's not a public company, so I can't see any of the growth rates or anything like that. And so without kind of really the conviction around competition, it's hard for me to put a lot of the investment dollars into that company. Yeah. Another reason is just it's a very new company and it's hard to kind of get a sense of any of the trends because it's been growing over 100% and it seems like everything's on the right track. But for a while, really the bottom line wasn't improving that much. And I kind of assumed that they weren't doing efficient business operations and marketing and everything. But the last quarter in particular, they had some huge operating leverage and margins really increased. And so that was kind of a, an interesting sign. And kind of going back to the inputs and outputs, that's an output right, of the business, the financials and all this. And then just checking those things, okay, this, is, this financial metric happened, and then going figuring out what is the input and figuring out how management is thinking about payback period and thinking about all of these things it's kind of like a big circle. So you check the financials and then you find out what the inputs are. And then you recheck the financials and kind of it's this circle of kind of figuring out the qualitative and quantitative aspects of the business. But yeah, it's kind of a, a combination of all those factors. Don't understand healthcare completely, just the space, not super familiar with it. And then kind of the competition and this other factor. And that's, yeah, that's kind of why it's a smaller position right now. And so how do you think about overall portfolio allocation? When you have multiple different stocks you like, or maybe even different asset classes like real estate, how do you allocate your capital appropriately? It's pretty tough. I think if for other asset classes, it depends on your circle of competence. So if you work in the real estate industry and you're really comfortable and you think there's an amazing deal, then you'll probably have a much higher allocation of real estate than I do, which I don't really know that much about real estate. So for me, just to kind of focus in on stocks, allocation is something that I think about a lot because there's definitely an art and a science. Like there's no you could look at it very mathematically and figure out, okay, this is probably on a risk adjusted basis, the ideal allocation that I could have. But it's pretty hard to do that when you have a qualitative bent. So I think of it kind of on two vectors. One is conviction and the other is kind of upside. And so upside would... It's kind of qualitative, quantitative, right? So upside would be more of the financial aspect. Looking out five or so years, what are the assumptions that I need to believe to kind of get a certain return that I think is respectable? And then... On conviction, it's like after looking at all of these aspects, looking at all of these inputs and talking to management or reading a ton 
this holistic sense, what kind of conviction do I have in this business? And do I believe it's going to be more profitable in the future? And then kind of based on these two vectors, I kind of create an allocation. But I think one interesting thing is that it's important to have a gold star. And a gold star is a company in your portfolio that any company that you're adding to the portfolio has to be better than each incremental dollar that you add to the gold star. And so I have a gold star in the portfolio and it's a big position, but I don't want to scale it up anymore. And so that's why I started this smaller position in Livongo. But basically, you need to have this gold star because if you, let's say you're interested in kind of ratcheting up the gold star, but you're adding other positions in the portfolio, you're adding extra complexity. So I think it's important to kind of have a benchmark that you you kind of look at everything else through that lens of, okay, should I buy more of this or more of this? It's kind of just having a benchmark to understand what's the best way I can position myself. Yeah. I think portfolio allocation is so hard. And I think it's something that not as many people talk about. I think they talk about how hard it is to find individual companies and it is, but that's really only one piece of it, right? You have to get that piece right, but then you also need to make sure you allocate appropriately because if you have the best company in the world that nobody else sees, it's super undervalued and it quadruples in value in a year, that's great. But if you only had a 1% of your portfolio allocated there, it doesn't really do much for your overall portfolio. Whereas if the other 99% of your portfolio is in a company that tanked, you know, of course, your returns for the year overall are not going to be great. And so that's why I think portfolio allocation is such a, a big thing that I think a lot of people, especially new investors like we're talking to here on the show, need to really take into consideration. Now, we're experiencing an interesting time in the market right now as we record this. It's early March 2020. And last week, the market had its worst week since the last financial crisis. And the coronavirus concerns are continuing to rise. How do you handle investing in this type of environment? We talk a lot about kind of the structure and all the things you need to understand as an investor, but really a huge piece is your emotional stability. I mean, if you can't kind of hold your head when everything else is going crazy, then like, what good does it do to have the best companies in your portfolio if you just sell them at the bottom? But I think that it is also like a self-enforcing or reinforcing loop. So the more that you learn about a company and the more that you understand the industry and the more you understand the inputs of the business and all of this stuff, you really spend so much time understanding this business and the valuation, and you think that it's an undervalued stock, and all of a sudden the market's tanking, you're probably going to have the conviction to at least hold on or if not buy more. And so I think it's this reinforcing loop that the more you learn, the more emotional stability you'll have. And then the more emotional stability you have means that you can spend more time just focusing on research and focusing on learning about the business. But I mean... Hey, if you've done all that research and you still can't hold your stocks when things are going crazy, then maybe you have a slightly different risk tolerance. Maybe you have to hold more cash in your portfolio. So just thinking about it like that is really important. Just really understanding why you're holding the companies you hold. If you don't know them, then you're much, you have a much higher likelihood of just selling out when things go bad. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of 
few years ago, I forget what year it was, but Bitcoin was trading around 1500, I want to say. And I bought one Bitcoin just because I wanted to try it. And I didn't understand it by any means. And I'm super risk tolerant. I love risk. I, I run a very concentrated portfolio. I use options quite a bit. I do a more risky type real estate in, in a lot of cases. And so I, I'm not necessarily scared of risk, but I just didn't understand Bitcoin. And it, it laid with my head psychologically. And I, I sold the next day. And then over the next couple of weeks, it went to 20,000. And because I was okay with that, I was completely okay with that because I knew I didn't understand it and it just didn't feel right. I wasn't able to sleep well at night. So I think you know, weathering things like we're going through right now is a big piece of that is understanding what you own, understanding why you own it, and understand where you think the business is going over the next five, 10 years rather than just you know over the next month, six months, even a year when this type of situation is going on. And the other piece of it too is that a lot of the listeners are probably relatively young like you and I, and they've likely only ever invested in a bull market and arguably one of the strongest bull markets we've ever seen in history. So for a new investor that's listening to the show that hasn't experienced this major volatility or economic issues, it's probably a bit of a shock, but it's probably also a, a good way for them to get their feet wet for you know, a potential recession that may be coming in the future. One underrated thing would be to start an investing journal. So anytime that stocks pull back like this week, uh, just write in the journal what sort of emotions that you're feeling and what decisions you're making. And then when you face uh, a good time and your emotions are completely different, you look back on that investing journal and say, wow, there's no way that I could have felt those emotions. My mindset is so much different now. And then when you're in the next crisis, you're in the next little pullback, you look back at that journal and see how the results have played out since then. And then that can kind of give you a foundation for making decisions with a fair amount of emotional stability. So as we wrap up the show, I want to talk about your biggest losing position in your investing career. What was that position and where did your thesis go wrong? A little bit ago, I bought GoPro, which I thought was had a stronger brand than it actually had. I think I really overestimated how important brand was going to be in terms of the value of the company. They had this, I think it was like the new GoPro 4 was coming out. And I thought that could be like a good product. I heard good things about what that product was going to be. I think I really underestimated how important software is in terms of a software hardware ecosystem. I mean, if you look at Apple, okay, yes, it's a hardware company. They sell phones. But really, it's the software that integrates everything that creates the stickiness and really creates the brand of that phone versus GoPro. There's not really a software ecosystem that has any switching costs at all. And so competition came in, really demand wasn't great for that product. And I just kind of made a mistake of anchoring to a high point and said, okay, GoPro is off 40%. How much farther can it go down? But that is really a dangerous way of looking at investing because this once again, the stock has no idea what price you bought it at. It doesn't matter if it's 40% off. All that matters is the future of that company. Is it actually getting stronger as a business? What are the financials looking like? So I think anchoring to a 52-week high and saying, okay, this company's down 50% is kind of a dangerous way to invest. And sometimes it'll catch you right. Sometimes it will turn around. But I think that 
I really put too much focus on the price versus actually thinking about the competitive advantages of the business. Yeah, it's interesting that you brought up GoPro. We hadn't talked about this before, but GoPro, I almost made the same investment. I I'm big into the action camera type space. I love photography. I also ride dirt bikes, race motocross, things like that. So I'm super into, you know, that total just ecosystem of action cameras. So I just wanted to believe in the company. Thankfully for me, I never I never pulled the trigger and I never bought it. And honestly, the biggest reason was I felt the same way about you as the brand. I thought they always had the best products. I thought they had the best brands. And I thought that that was going to get them through. And I thought the valuation was really attractive. And then I bought a $50 or $60 camera off Amazon that was the exact same thing. And it worked amazing. And maybe GoPro was a little bit better, but it was good enough. right? For most people who are not professional photographers, such as myself, it was a good enough product. And for me, that was the point where I just I told myself I couldn't buy the stock. And what I think is interesting, that goes back, that circles back to our conversation we had earlier. Whereas if we just bought on fundamentals, I would have bought that stock because it, it was attractive. But when I started to look at the qualitative side of the business, I started to look at long term and say, do they really have a sustainable moat with a brand that they can defend long term into the future? And can that act as a catalyst to bring back the value in the stock that the fundamentals might be showing? And for me, the answer was no. So I feel bad that you you had those losses, but you know we we learned from it, right? And I'm sure you learned from that that mistake, and I'm sure you'll you'll make more money from that mistake than you lost from that trade. Ryan, thanks for your time. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think the audience is gonna get a lot of value from it. Where can the audience go to learn more about you and just all the different things that you got going on? Thanks so much. So website would be a great place to go. So that's investingcity.org. You just type in investing city on Google. I'm sure you can find it. I have a ton of educational resources for free on there. I um, also have a research service and a lower price newsletter where kind of the tagline is like reading a 10K, but infinitely better. We just break down different businesses. And then also following me on Twitter, pretty active on there. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate your conversation. Thought we provided a lot of great content. I'll be sure to put links to those different resources in the show notes. I'll also put different links to the topics that we talked about throughout the show, as well as some books that relate to those topics, such as Peter Lynch's book, One Up on Wall Street. So if you want to go read those further, you could definitely do that by clicking the link in the show notes below or going to theinvestorspodcast.com. Ryan, thanks so much for coming on the show tonight. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. My pleasure. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.